So Luke, yes, another day, another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's a rainy morning, sat here in Rockpool Bar and Grill, mm. as we are. Looking forward to our next guest, who is? Yeah. Neil Perry, the one and only. I think I've heard of you. Mate, um, yeah, I um, got intro to him through a mate, actually, who used to work for him for a number of years, and I guess my... Uh, interaction with him had been zero up until asking him to come on this podcast but he, I guess, tiny little backstory, um, and I think I only tell, say this because it kind of gives you a bit of insight as to, as to who he is as an individual, someone with his kind of profile you know, he's travelling globally um, is uh, a consultant chef to Qantas, like he's, he's we all know his background pretty loosely, but um, sent him an email out of the blue and said we're doing this podcast would you like to come on and he took 20 minutes out of his time to sit down have a chat about it learn more about it and was just an extremely humble and gracious guy so um yeah i mean he probably needs no introduction but um yeah some amazing restaurants um the one we're sitting in now is probably my all-time favorite restaurant just from a culinary perspective from an experience perspective from an aesthetic perspective so i'm personally really looking forward to sitting down with him having a chat as am i let's get him on so neil thank you for uh, joining us on the back of house podcast it's a pleasure to have you pleasure um so we've only had very brief interactions i guess in the past but um uh, we thought, given your, I guess, notoriety, obviously, in the industry and reputation for, um, I think, primarily uh, building an amazing culture is what I've, yeah. I've heard about you um, in, in the business, speaking to people that work for you, and that's how we were connected in, in yeah, the first place, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, we might start at the very beginning, though. In terms of your journey into the hospitality sector and then obviously becoming an internationally acclaimed chef. But where did that sort of start for you? Is it a lifelong dream as a kid or <laughs> happenstance? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it was something that, you know, potentially I fell into, but then I recognised once I was involved in it that it was something that I'd been kind of been preparing my whole life because it was really based around uh, my father was an amazing guy um he he was a butcher by trade um a crazy keen fisherman uh and he also uh he came from the country originally so he al- always kept a garden um when i was growing up so we would eat beautiful fresh produce and seasonal produce and i'd be out gardening with him and we'd be picking fruit in summer and <clears throat> growing tomatoes and zucchinis and squash and uh, and in winter we'd be we'd be growing root vegetables and 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 so forth and um, every holidays we'd be going fishing so uh, beautiful fresh fish was you know on the table all the time and prawning and crabbing and uh, and he brought home amazing meat so the cornerstone of everything that I've become is really about great produce and about seasonality and without realizing that I you know I really picked that up off my father. Uh, and then I stumbled into the restaurant industry like a lot of people d- do where I was looking for some extra money to go overseas and started waiting. Um, and about day three, I just re- realised that I was really having fun and loved doing what I was doing. Um, so, you know, within 12 months, I was uh, assistant manager in a restaurant. Within 18 months, I was managing a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and, and then really just, uh, you know, that was really the next five years of my life. Uh, and then at about uh, 25, I decided that I really wanted to pursue this passion for cooking. So that's how it happened. So as a child, <coughs> Sydney, grew up in Sydney? Yeah, as a child, grew up in Sydney. Yeah. City, wasn't it? So yeah. you were, were essentially farming in a... 
in a yeah, my, well, we, yeah, well, we we grew, we, yeah, <laughs> we, we, it was great. We lived we lived at a place called Ballface Point on Stewart Street. Um, it's it's sort of Blakehurst, Hurstville. Right. Uh, it's on the Georges River, okay. and we were on a couple of acres there in the day that was sort of staged down to the river. So we were up on street level, um, and then we had a garden, and then my father had an aviary, so we had chickens, and wow. um, you know we had the uh, obligatory passion fruit vine and the choco vine, and um, and in those days you to be able to eat oysters off the rocks so so uh you know he'd be fishing at george's river uh we'd also go every uh school holidays we'd either go in the in the in the winter we'd go to yamba or, or yeah. north and in the summer we would go down to brill lakes and and uh, uh down south so Aladala and fish so yeah that was really a, a, a fantastic but, but besides that he was also uh, he ran a meat work so that he, he had a lot of um there were a lot of new Australians working in that business from various parts of Europe um, in the very beginning, starting in the, a little bit in the Middle East. And uh, so we were exposed to, you know, pickled eggplants and salami and all sorts of things that Dad would bring uh, bring home from those, you know, very traditional, you know, roasted peppers and all the sorts of stuff that, uh, uh, you know, you might have on a really beautiful Italian roll now. We were kind of eating in the 60s and... Uh, and at the same time, he was really great at, at collecting people. So we used to go to a favourite Chinese restaurant um, the, and in uh, in the city. And, uh, you know, we kind of befriended a couple of the waiters there who then went on to open the Shanghai Village and Robert Ho, who owned it, then went on to open the Dixon and uh, be the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney. And But we were great friends of theirs. So, you know, we'd go to their celebrations, whether it was, you know, birth of the children or a wedding or... Chinese New Year or they come to our house and so I got to eat very authentic um, Chinese food which was sort of the basis I guess of, of where I started on my journey of, of um, integrating Asian flavours. Right and you so, okay, about your schooling, I was reading this on Wikipedia, yeah. so this may, <laughs> may or may not be true. I was, edi- I was editing it two hours before this morning to have him Did schooled you, in Queensland. What was the reason you left New England? Uh, no, because they asked me to get my hair cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it is true. Um, so I've had a kind of uh, love affair with long hair since 16. Right. Uh, went to Dremoyne High for years uh, five and six, which is the, now it's called 11 and 12. Yep, because <clears throat> I was brought up in an era where there was you know pounds, shillings, and pence, and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, pints, pints yeah. and ounces. Um, so I've gone through that whole gamut of going to to the currency change and the yeah, right. and the the change to metric and uh, and also the you know the change in my life from short hair to long hair at sixteen. And I'd really uh, stayed at Dremoyne for the next two years with the high school certificate. I, I don't think I got my hair cut for the entire yeah, time. Yeah. So um, yeah, no. So the ponytail is kind of been there um, since 16 so a long time <clears throat> one of the things you're just talking about I want to interrogate further if you don't mind which is uh, and other people talk about this it's about especially kids and not understanding where food comes from yeah that um, discussion it's become very commoditized through supermarket distribution all those sorts of things and uh, and um, and listening and as a father both Luke and I are dads with kids under five where um you know, at this era where we're starting yeah, yeah. to think about sustainability and uh, you know making growing things at home in, yeah. in, in inner city farms Absolutely. and stuff, it's it's interesting because hearing you talk about growing up uh, in the time frame that you did uh, and having uh, that experience to 
I mean, you, you saw firsthand where your food was coming from. Absolutely, um, yeah. Bit of a lost uh, thing these days, I think, for many, but it's starting to make a bit of a comeback. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Look, I think people are more interested in, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of people who want to try and make bread at home or, mm. you know, they'll try and make pizza base and they're really excited about making pasta because it's quite simple once you get to, to understand how to do it. Um, but I think that whole thing of understanding where where the meat comes from so uh, or the fish comes from so like you know we're a beautiful place like Sydney so taking the kids to the fish markets taking them and walking into a butcher shop um, not a supermarket where it's wrapped in plastic uh, you know going to a really great fruit and vegetable shop and seasoning, seeing seasonality you know these are really important things because you've got to connect with where food comes from and there's a lot of fad diets around but you know my my sort of you know diet is a really a diet for life which is which is really you know sort of like along the mediterranean kind of lifestyle and diet i mean although i do a lot of asian integration of flavors but a lot of vegetables a lot of olive oil um you know we eat quite a, a bit of dairy um we eat a lot of legumes actually uh we eat a bit of meat we eat quite a bit of fish um and so you know i love steak but i don't have steak every day um so i might have red meat once a week and uh, chicken and then I eat seafood and we eat a lot of vegetarian um, food at home. So all of those things boil down to being able to maintain a proper lifestyle and proper weight without going to, you know, crazy fat diets. So I think the more people learn to eat properly and eat fresh, um, the more we'll have a, you know, a better balance in that, that kind of obesity um, Yeah, there's that epidemic. aspect. And then sort of if you look at the wider <coughs> sustainability issues and balance with the planet, that sort yes. of flow um, yeah. from it, it's, uh, there's a few things driving driving um, movement towards that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, And particularly if you look long-term, um, you know, where all the issues we're, we're going to have is, you know, being in it at the moment, but surrounding water, you know, like the last couple of world wars have been really fought around oil and the next one might well be fought around water. Been water conservation is going to be incredible. Um, waste management is going to be an incredible thing um, to be focused on because we, we already, you know, create enough food in the world to feed everybody. Yeah. Um, we just waste a third of it, so it's pretty insane. It is, yeah, which is... Um I was seeing this film 2040. Have you come across that? No, so, no, I've you know, it. Yeah, like it's a uh, highly recommend uh, in terms of, I guess, where the opportunities <coughs> lie for uh, our generation or yeah. uh, to to take what we have now and yeah. uh, and get things back in balance. Uh, that's just a shout out for that. It's by the maker of uh, Damon Gamu, I think his name is, who recent who made that sugar film. So right, yeah, uh, yeah. it sort of tracks. Uh, sustainability of the planet through the eyes of his four-year-old daughter and yeah, what she's, absolutely. What she's yeah. going to sort of experience. And uh, No, well, there's some good things going on. I mean, our kids are always hassling. You know, I've got a, 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 an older daughter who's 25, but the one who's just about turned 15 and, and 13, they're always hassling us about, you know, yeah. waste. And, and, and um, they just made an approach to the school. Uh, you know, they go to Kambala, which is a great school, but they don't really have a proper recycling program that the kids are involved in. Um, the, you know, the, the gardeners and the the various handy guys sort of sort out the rubbish and that's not really teaching the kids the right mm. uh, you know way so so you know they're, they're really interested in sustainability and I think that's probably going to save the planet and I'm the sort of person who is the opposite of ScoMo I reckon that if all the kids in the world struck and didn't go to school for one day and it made politicians wake up that it could be the most important day of school they ever had I, I couldn't agree more we uh, did some work <clears throat> around this campaign last year, Sydney Doesn't Suck, which was to mm. really accelerate uh, elimination of plastic, of plastic straws. straws and, yeah. uh, and which 
people say, oh, what's just a plastic straw, but really mm. it's a, as we're referring to it as a gateway drug to sustainability. Because yeah, if yeah. you don't need that plastic straw, what else don't you need, you know? And, yeah. um, well, everything that's symbolic leads people down a path, right? So yeah, exactly. That's the big yeah. argument about, oh, what difference would we make? Well, you know, if we lead the world somewhere, it'd make a big difference. Um, yeah. As opposed to, you know, not taking any leadership role. Yeah. It's one of the things I would like to be proud of to be Australian because we take leadership on climate change and humanity and yeah. um, and the way that we care. I mean, humanity is the biggest thing at the moment, you know, really missing in the world. When you see things happening in, in Syria and you see things happening around the world where, uh, you know, you, you just see frail waste of human life and disregard for human uh, life, it's really the humanity in people that is missing. Yeah, and you know, I think that... that, that uh when you are faced with those issues, which are like, they're not fear-mongering, are they? It's, these are just real challenges, water, mm. water, water wars or uh, water <coughs> conservation that, yeah. that we need to think about. Um, hopefully it has the power to unite people for good. You know, yeah. that's what, you've got to take that view. And, and kids definitely all hold us accountable, don't they? When we were talking about the Sydney Doesn't Suck stuff uh, and should we get involved? Not should we get involved, but I was just talking to my wife about, you know, oh, we've got to do this thing about straws and my four-year-old piped up and she said, Dad, Straws are bad. You yeah, know, yeah, They get into the water and they kill the seals. And I'm like, all right, <coughs> we're, we're going to do, do it, it now. Yeah. <coughs> is, yeah. that, is that something that is, I guess, actively integrating its way into your businesses today? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right from the beginning, sustainability and sustainable produce and humanely treated animals and, you know, fish that are that are fished with a, a view of the oceans and the sustainability of the ocean. Um, so, you know, we work directly with all the farmers and directly with all the fishermen and, and make sure that we, we, we know the guys that are, that are, that are bringing our produce in the, in the back door um, so that we know that we can hand on heart say that, you know, this animal lived a great life, this fish was treated properly, this, yeah. the, there was no um, damage to the environment, uh, the marine environment, um, catching this fish, and no, no byproduct catch, and sort of all the sorts of things that are really important. But, you know, one of the big issues that we... Um, really try and focus on it's not well not an issue it's really a, a, a fundamental philosophy of the business really is you know we get a lot of amazing young people the industry is full full of young you know kids coming into the kitchen and kids working on the floor um and you know the average age is probably you know if you took from high to low probably you know you'd be lucky to get to 30 actually yeah so we want people to sort of not not just come and be, become better cooks or come and become, you know, better waiters or managers or better sommeliers like Yuki or... But we'd really like them to become better people. So we focus on um, sustainability, community. I tell them all to get political because, you know, my generation has stuffed the whole world up. Um, it's really important if they don't grab hold of it and run with it and mm. don't care about it and don't vote and don't you know protest and don't have a voice that that you know 70 year old men like trump is going to decide which direction the world is going in and i just don't think that's a really healthy no. you know for their for their generation how for a business person that could be listening to this who i guess may the first consideration will likely be the cost implication for their sure. business can you put a dollar figure on that approach in your organisation, whether it be from a cost of goods perspective and ensuring that the fish that you are purchasing yeah. is <clears throat> sustainably sourced? Well, Do you think it's... I think I think I think I no I think pretty much you always end up on the right side of the ledger on that one by doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean we we work directly with our fishermen so we know who they are. So we cut the middleman out. So we actually put a 
a, a, a better valued product in our in our kitchens mm. um, because of that relationship. Um, we 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 compost um, organics um, and that saves us money on landfill. Um, you know, we, we take straws out uh, and have a biodegradable straw and only give it out when somebody asks for it. Uh, so all of those things, you know, really come back to the fundamental of, you know, they're, 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 they're really a, a, a benefit to the business mm. and a benefit to the people within the business. And it's also very important for people within any kind of organisation to believe in, you know, what that organisation believes in yeah. and, you know, hand on heart, I get great job satisfaction because I know when I come to work, not only am I serving great food, not only have I got fantastic customers, uh, and that's the fundamental basis of my job, but I also know that I've got a business and I'm working for a business that cares about people who are less fortunate, works with the community, works uh, with the environment, talks to, to fishermen about you know, how to look after the ocean better, talks to farmers about how better farming practices, how conservation of soil is such an important thing because, again, it comes back to, you know, moisture and water and all, all the things that, you know, as a farming country in Australia, culturally, um, we're really struggling with. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, that, I think, as I started in terms of... Um, the feedback, or feedback's probably the wrong word, but things that I've heard from people that work in your organisation yeah. is that that permeates um, right the way through. I, I mean, it's almost like and beyond, isn't it? Like we've had a number of uh, former yeah. employees <coughs> or staffers through the podcast, or and um, yeah, you've you know. Uh, and talking to you, you can feel it right like it's it's this um it's authentic it's well yeah and, 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 yeah and, 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 I, and i talk to the guys a lot about it you know we have a lot of meetings and and um not just the management team but i talk to the staff particularly in the restaurants that i run within the group and i always think it's really important for them to you know kind of drink the kool-aid if that's <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know we do a lot of work for charity and i think you you know you need to do that coming from the right place yeah. um you know we're, we're having a lot of fun um with indigenous ingredients at the moment here over the last few years and we're doing a number of dinners at places like Spice Temple where we're integrating that and there's a there's a you know a part of that is the fact that one there's a lot of really de delicious um, in indigenous ingredients uh, two it probably gives us an opportunity to do something unique in the world um, and through uh, uh, you know our first Australians it's it, it's what really defines what Australia is and and three I think it gives a really great opportunity for um, indigenous Australians to have a great deal of respect about where you know where their food comes from where their culture comes from we've got some brilliant young kids we've been working with the um, um, NICI which is the uh, National Indigenous Culinary uh, Council right. or Institute sorry and uh, we've got about five kids that have come through them over the last few years now and um, two of them have worked their way up to junior sous chefs which is great um, young Sam runs the pass over at Rosetta and Luke um, uh, is, is a really integral part here and and Jade and, and uh, Liz and you know they're all really fantastic kids but we want to make them feel like you know we really respect the fact that we've got 60,000 years of, of food and culture in this country not mm. 230 yeah. um, and I would say to everybody who you know doesn't want to change uh, the day of, of Australia Day like why would you want to exclude a really important group of people who are the first Australians when most of us really wouldn't care what day it is we just really love to have a national day right so so you know I just think that whole reconciliation path is super important it's one of the reasons I love working with Qantas they're really committed yeah. um, to it they have some amazing indigenous programs there as well which are 
which are fantastic. And, um, you know, we, we sort of strive to, to make sure that everybody who comes through the, the business recognises that um, we're, we're, we're incredibly blessed to have uh, a wonderful culture that, that is 60,000 years old. I mean, it's amazing. I went um, with Twiggy once up to his property. I was cooking um, dinner there with some great friends of mine and we went out on a helicopter out in the Pilbara I mean, it's the most incredible country mm. um, and just saw these amazing rock forms uh, with with these beautiful bowls sort of carved out of them where you know 50,000 years ago Aboriginal women were basically taking flaxseed and grinding it into a flour to make a flat bread you know here in Australia um, we have this incredible history and yet yeah. so many people um, you know turn their back on it it's yeah. sad and so many people just don't know and like uh, talking about generations uh, <coughs> Luke and my generation were just educated incorrectly maybe yeah, yours as well you know absolutely. and uh, and, um, and it's interesting watching how quickly you know because information is accessible yeah, yeah. outside of yeah, the momentum is gathering that's right yeah. and, uh, and 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 it's um, you know and it represents some major challenges yeah. but opportunities I think which Absolutely. is what you're saying really like yeah. it's uh, in terms of defining the Australian identity and, and, and I think the really important really exciting thing about it from my perspective is a lot of this actually reconciliation is happening through food you know we're, we're, we're talking to, to Aboriginal elders about how they you know how they treat product and how mm. they get flavours out of it and how they mm. you know render something which you would think is worthless into something that has great worth so you know all, all of that is really about making sure that that young aboriginal kids and and indigenous kids and pe people who um, indigenous kids who live in a, in a in an urban environment can see that their culture is actually valued by by the wider australia and yeah. and that it's really important that they don't lose their culture and um, you know in 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 uh, indigenous people we have have you know probably the greatest uh, group of people in, you know, water conservation um, in the world, you know, and so we don't look to how they survived in this incredible um, arid country. Yeah. Uh, we just charge off. I, 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 I was just reading it the other day because I'm just reading it, writing a piece on sustainability for Qantas and in um, in the Rockpool Bar and Grill Cookbook I talk a lot about sustainability through through various things and I talk about that sort of, you know, how human beings are so ingenious but we always tie ourselves up at the end um, <laughs> because when I was young, you know, we used to race out and grab the milk bottle and the cream would be sitting on top and Dad would always get first spoonful of cream on the porridge and the kids would be know we'd split the rest and... Uh, and for some reason, people didn't like that, so they decided they'd homogenise yeah. milk. Um, and then so, you know, if you've got cream on, on uh, separates out of milk, it's a really big fat molecule that's so easy for the body to grab and burn. It's about the first thing whenever we exercise that we burn off. Right. But when you actually splinter that and you suspend it um, through through the milk and you make it uh, as fine as that, the, the body can't actually um, grab it and burn it. It actually absorbs it and takes it into fat. So... Then what we do, instead of going, oh, we probably fucked this up, so let's go back to having um, unhomogenized whole milk, some genius goes, oh, no, I'm going to create skin milk. And then there's 50 different varieties of something that we didn't actually need to do that doesn't taste like real milk. Mm. Um, so, you know, people just outsmart themselves continually. We never, whenever we get to a point where we realise we've done something wrong, we never go back to think, 
how, why did that fail? We will kind of invent a new way of getting around that, which usually is another epic fail, right? So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. hard to. I mean, the I've got a couple of questions if, if we're happy to kind of continue this line because yeah, the really. the thing that uh, we've spent a bit of time trying to think about an influence is the ethical supply of indigenous ingredients, and yeah. you know, there's uh, it's an area of um, interest obviously um yeah. but you know inevitably partly with using your skim milk analogy like yeah. the uh the opportunity is then spotted by forces greater than uh, uh absolutely you, you which we're working the, through continually that's right yeah you know? and um and we uh had a challenge a few years ago with uh, uh after um uh, the Noma pop-up and, you know, awareness around Mad Sid sort of drove yeah, interest yeah. in Indigenous ingredients. Then uh, through the bartending circles we roll through, uh, uh, we, we started asking some of the bartenders about their products that yeah. weren't, were, were inverted commas, native. And, of course, they then asked the questions of the suppliers and very quickly we realised that there was some sharp practices around yeah the, and the right the right people weren't necessarily getting the reward for yeah, or, or worst case things were just being badged you know yeah, and yeah. so it, it um sort of sparked this uh line of inquiry which is quite challenging when you start thinking about the implications of yeah. native ingredients and in terms of say for example a sizable restaurant group's use that's yeah. that's one thing but in terms of uh use in supermarkets it's just at another scale like <coughs> and, and yeah entirely and um <laughs> So if you start thinking through the logistics of native breads and stuff, um, how we get there uh, at scale is, yeah. is, is is challenging. Have you sort of entered into that realm of debate? Well, we sort of we do definitely talk to our suppliers about how ethical and where it comes from and what's farmed and what's not, <clears throat> what's 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 foraged, and and we also want to make sure that the majority of what it, what what's earned out of that is going back yeah, to the community. Yeah. We've also started talking <clears throat> in terms of the way we design uh, menus at Qantas and, and, and incorporating Indigenous ingredients there of how we set up a network of communities around the country where we know that <clears throat> all that we're doing is actually benefiting the community. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that we're really focusing on and want to be very strong on. So it's, um, it's going to be a little bit of trial and error to start with because it's going to be working just like we did with farmers and fishermen and whatever, finding the right genuine people and making sure that they're then filtering that back into the community. But it's something that we're very committed to. Yeah, and I think, you know, congratulations, I mean, hats off. Like, I think that with the, these particular set of challenges, if I can group them together, it's you got to start with the conversation, you know, like, a, and, and have oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then, you know, a few missteps along the way, yeah. well, you know, better that we're talking about it and moving forward than not. Yeah, well, look, it's exactly the same as the amount of, you know, line caught fish on a menu or, you know, the, the, um, certain, you know, mm. I remember years ago, like a you know, Saskia beer saying, you know, that can't possibly be my chicken because uh, I haven't sold to that particular supplier for a long time and the supplier was actually, you know, taking another chicken and putting it in a, you know, Saskia beer bag. I mean, so you, you've got to, you've got to work your way around the charlatans in the industry. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I thought I'm quite interested to learn that you started front of house, which is yeah. not normally a, 
I guess, a progression that you would assume for someone who's achieved as much as you have in yeah. the kitchen or back of house. So, um, it was a sales restaurant. Was that where you kind of first... Yeah, that's sort of where I really sort of did most of my front of house. I mean, I think, um, importantly, it's probably made me a better restaurateur doing mm. it that way. Um, and, and, and a better chef because I went in more organised, more structured. I understood the business better. Yeah. Um, you know, I was hiring and firing people, doing wages. Down at sales, I was going to the market buying fish because I probably knew more about fresh seafood than the chef did actually because yeah. my, my father. Um, so, so uh, you know, it really primed me and I, and I, and I understood customers um, and I understood the interaction between the floor and the kitchen. So essentially when I started cooking, I, I made a really conscious decision that I didn't want to see that kind of, uh, and I had my own restaurants, so I didn't want to see that um, demarcation between front of house and back of house. I really wanted it to be one team, you know, the old cliche, one team, one dream. But, you know, I sort of created a whole lot of philosophy that that that, that uh, really drove both of those guys uh, together to, to to make sure that there was there was one focus, which was you know looking after the customer and mm. and you know the back end of that, hopefully getting a lot of great job satisfaction because we we're all looking after each other. And so that was only at about twenty four, wasn't it, that you became I guess, more <coughs> in the kitchen than front of house? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, sort of twenty four, twenty five, um, and then I spent a year. <coughs> excuse me. Then I spent a year. Uh, working uh, for some of the best chefs in the country, so I was yep. very lucky. Um, I'd been a, a great customer of Damien and Josephine Pignolet, yep. uh, which is why my daughter's called Josephine, because she was a great influence of mine. Right. But uh, I worked for three months for, their, for them because I went to Damien and said, look, I really want to learn how to cook. And he said, well, you know, read everything from Jane Grigson, Elizabeth David and Rita Scoffier and... and, um, and, and, uh, and and you know, come and work for us one day a week. And I and I came in and um, did a little trial on a Wednesday. And he said, "I'll oh, look, come and you know work with us all the whole time." So mm-hmm. I spent three months working with him, and he was a great friend of Stephanie Alexander. And she came uh, along, and and uh, I kind of did an interview with her. And she said, "Look, I need somebody for three months in Melbourne. Come and work for me." Yanni was coming to Sydney. The new chef was coming in, and that was a fantastic experience <clears throat> down there. I mean. Italy won the World Cup in 1982, which was pretty extraordinary. So uh, we all ran down to Ligon Street and partied. I'll never forget <laughs> yeah. that. Um, but I worked for in, in you know the really great group of you know Tansy Good was there and a group of really fantastic people. But I learned an amazing lot of great lessons um, at, at Stephanie's. Uh, then I came back and I worked at Brow Waters um, in right. for two or three months. Uh, Gay had just taken over. Tony had left um, and to open Kinsella's. And uh, food was amazing there. A really awesome, awesome restaurant. Yeah. Still would be incredibly relevant today. Uh, and then I um, went and worked uh, at the, uh, ba- sorry, the Bayswater Brasserie right. um, when it first opened, <clears throat> which was insane because I'd gone from small restaurants cooking very fine food to a brasserie doing 350 covers a night where there was probably Tony and myself and maybe one other guy who knew what we were doing. Mm. Um, not that I really knew what I was doing because I was pretty new to cooking, but <laughs> but I was very structured and organised because I run businesses. So so uh, that was f- phenomenal, um, and I learned a tremendous amount about just volume and and, yeah. and doing things there. And that was just insane that place when we opened it. What year would that have been? <clears throat> that was at the end of 1982. Right. Okay. And so I, uh, yeah, I. I, I went for a job, a girlfriend, an ex-girlfriend of mine um, said she was working in the city um, with Judy McMahon yep. and Judy Michael McMahon had just bought um, 
just bought Baron Joey House. Okay. And Michael had worked at Barara and been doing wine consulting, worked for Len Evans, uh, so I knew who he was. And uh, it was a head chef's job. She's going, you know, you can do it, you can do it kind of thing. Um, so... And I and I probably thought that I was better than I was, but I went up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I went up and uh, and I and I interviewed with Michael up at Baron Joe. He rode my bike up. I used to ride on a bike in those days, and so um, yeah, I just remember being there and and you know Michael and I sitting down the balcony, lived in Palm Beach Road, overlooking over overlooking Palm, Palm Beach, which was just so beautiful. It was a lovely day. It was kind of October, and um, you know. I sort of got there about 11.30. We were still talking at midday. Went and opened a bottle of Riesling. We drank wine. And and um, and I think he kind of looked at that I'd, you know, I'd worked at, at, at Barara and I'd worked at Stephanie's and I'd worked at Damien, mm. with Damien and at Claude's. I'm just not sure if it sort of dawned on him for how long I'd been cooking. <laughs> right. But um, we really hit it off. And uh, and so I, I got the job and, that, and I started in November. Mm. Uh, and... Um, my first uh, review in December was um, Joan uh, Joan um, Campbell, who was you know real doyen of of the food industry back in those days, and Sue Feli Cunningham's mother, and uh, Vogue Entertaining, and wrote for the Telegraph, and she gave me a really fantastic um, review. And then in the January, um, Leo Schofield came up and did a review for the newspaper of Peter Doyle, um, yep. who. You know, recently been at S, but but had a restaurant called Reflections, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Baron Joey House, and he reviewed both restaurants, and he gave um, seventeen out of twenty to both, which is you know the high end of two hats, and um, and wrote the kids a star, and uh, wow. you know never kind of looked back from that time. So I was really fortunate, you know, just being in the right place at the right time. I, you know, my everything that my father had taught me, I mm. sort of tried to bring to the cooking. And um, and I was cooking really good French provincial food, really, you know, amazing muscle and saffron soup and beautiful chicken en vase and, you know, all, the, all these incredible things. Um, and it, I went to France in uh, 1984 <coughs> and I... Um, it was my first trip uh, out of Australia, yeah. and uh, my girlfriend at the time, Annie, and I went, and we uh, we went and did, I think it was like 19 three-star restaurants in 21 days. <laughs> so I came back fat. <clears throat> I came back, you know, in awe of the cooking, and and uh, I, I came back with a very simple notion, which seems really naive now, but um, you know, it was 1984. I was cooking in Palm Beach. I was cooking French provincial food. Came back from these incredible three-star experiences. Alain Ducasse and went to uh, Freddy Gerardet's in Krishna in Switzerland, and and ate at Robichon, and <clears throat> so and exposed this incredible food. And the, the kind of really simple notion dawned on me is that they're French people cooking really brilliant food, French food in France. What am I doing in Palm Beach cooking French food in <laughs> Palm Beach? Which should have been a really easy idea to come to, but it took me, <clears throat> took me yeah. a while to come to that notion. Yeah. And so from about uh, June in 1984, I started integrating into my food the things that I really loved, which because of my background with my father was essentially Chinese, um, a lot more Italian, which I used to love, um, mm. And uh, and and a little tiny bit of Middle Eastern, which you know through Dad's um, influence, I'd really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I had sort of ended up in by the time I opened um, Rockpool Bar and Grill, 
uh, sorry, by the time I opened Rockpool in 1989, I was kind of full-blown, you know, cooking a lot of Moroccan food and, 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 and so forth. But, but it led to, um, you know, me kind of leaving uh, and, and opening the Blue Water Grill in 1986. Yep. And uh, that was a, a full expression of, of, you know, I had a... It was really kind of like a kind of a, a seafood brasserie grill, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and just by virtue of the fact that I could only fit about five people in the kitchen, but we were doing about 300 covers a night, <laughs> I had to be really efficient with what we did. So it was essentially a whole lot of Asian dressings from Chinese, Thai, um, Indian, Sri Lankan, uh, sort of origin, mm. Korean. <clears throat> First started using gochujang there and lots of sesame oil and and um, and yeah so you know whether it was a sort of dressing on a salad or a kind of warm dressing on something we were grilling that was all we had time to do so we'd literally grill all the fish or we'd be frying something there'd be a pot of mussels on the stove the cold things would come out everything would come off the grill and we'd plate and then like you know a mango chili mango salad with namjin would go there or we'd put a sand bowl and toss that through that and tip it into a bowl so through virtue of the way the, the place was set up um, we had to had to do that, but it really re- revolutionised what people thought about seafood. Right. And, and it was really interesting because um, Peter Caravides was my first um, sous chef there yeah. and he came and his background was cooking French um, food in London and cooking with Tony Bilson and cooking with Peter, uh, sorry, Peter, Greg Doyle. Yeah. <clears throat> and he came on board and he tells the story of like, he's like, Hang on, I'm half Sri Lankan, and this white guy is cooking <laughs> is cooking Asian food like it's fantastic. What, I have to do this, so he said it's. It really prompted him to start to explore his Sri Lankan yeah. um, side of his 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 heritage and the food, and um, we were already doing uh, those sorts of things back then. So that was. You know, really, really exciting times, and it was very dynamic. And um, there was brilliant young people in the industry that were working through there. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the basis of what became, um, you know, fundamentally um, the menu driver for Rockpool when I opened it in more of a fine dining mm-hmm. um, framework. Uh, really, those notions started at the at the Blue Water Grill. Um, and I'm saying, <coughs> sorry to interrupt, but. So you essentially moved into the kitchen around 80, is that right? 82, 82, yeah. And then four years later you had your own Mm. restaurant no formal apprenticeship or qualification no no basically after after from the time i started cooking till the time leo gave me the write-up was just over a year what was your headspace like when you opened Blue Water Grill? I mean, that um, a, a business of your own. Yeah, well, it was. Um, I mean, I really loved it. Um, <clears throat> there was a lot of uh, crazy stuff going on in those days uh, with all the staff and all the sh- all the shit we used to do together. Um, surprised we ever got uh, to work, but we always did every single day. Um, and and we had an incredible bond. But one of the things that was really fantastic about that experience is John Sussman, who'd come to work for me earlier, he's a great friend of mine, you know, really Australia's seafood guru now, um, was cooking and then actually went to front of house at, at, uh, at Blue Water Grill. But we started bringing fish in from various places around the country, uh, King George Whiting out of a guy in South Australia and beautiful fresh squid and Pacific 
Pacific oysters and we were bringing um, lobsters and abalone and pink eye potatoes for the first time out of Tasmania and I was going to the market and buying whole fish and everything would come in spanking fresh and we'd dry fillet everything on the premises and that's where all that whole idea about you know, how fish is looked after, d- directly sourcing from fishermen, um, dry filleting to get the best result, um, that all started uh, back then. So that was a really important part of how the industry um, views how you treat um, seafood and fish now, and that's the way we've always done it from from that time through Rockpool and through the various restaurants that we have um, to the point where, you know, here at Rockpool Bar and Grill we have a, a butcher shop and a fish basic manga shops where we where we're filleting and cleaning every every day so all of those ideas started um back there and, and they're the kind of reason i suppose that we got to be in uh, you know an industry leader um <clears throat> and then i guess you know opening Rockpool and rocketing to you know i think we've won gourmet traveler restaurant of the year five times no other restaurants ever done that and uh th- you know three hats in the good food guide more more often than not um top 50 restaurants in the world seven years in a row you know so it was a pretty exciting day when I was, um, I was skiing with my wife actually in in Aspen and Scott Bowles rang me and said hey you uh, have you ever heard of this restaurant list called top 50 restaurants in the world uh, you're number four I went, oh that's nice no <laughs> I haven't and of course it's grown into such an iconic I'm um, heading up there in in two weeks actually in Singapore this year it's being announced so you know to have a career that spans as many years 42 years in the industry now and then um to have actually been at the pointy end of all those accolades and um have seen amazing staff grow and amazing staff go off and do their own thing and mm. and thrive um you know it gives me just as much enjoyment as 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 whatever i achieve myself uh <coughs> only because i've been dying to ask and you've mentioned a few reviewers the um the impact of reviews and I guess like um, to give you some context uh, you know when we launched Time Out like 13 years ago now here um, there used to be this sort of agreement between reviewers and restaurants about kind of a bit of a grace period yeah before publishing a review you know sort of well, I remember it was about eight weeks, and then um, then used to, be, used to be about twelve once upon a time. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Well, but, yeah, maybe. But and 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 it's and it crept forward, crept forward, crept. And then digital media came along. Well, that's then, been driven by by editors just going, "Oh, you've got to be out there." Yeah, that's right. And the yeah. interesting thing is, Jonathan Goldman, who died just recently, passed away of pancreatic cancer in July, who reviewed for the LA Times, um, resisted all of that, and still used to have the three month rule on on new restaurants and. Uh, the great shame of it is um, all the reviewers burn their reviews, not really knowing what that restaurant's like, because there's no way. Um, you, you can understand the intent of the restaurant, of course, but there is absolutely no way you can know how polished that restaurant is um, by going in the second night that it's open. It's just not possible. So a lot of reviews are actually, you know, you, the, the reviewers build a buffer in to go, I know, in three months' time. Um, whereas once upon a time they used to go in after three months and go, well, you know, I'm telling punters to come here because I know, or not to, um, because I know how good this restaurant yeah, is. Yeah. And of course, <clears throat> a restaurant to really hit a strap takes anywhere between one and three years. Um, yeah, right. So, you know, great restaurants really grow into themselves. Yeah. But it's really interesting. I mean, you know, that review that Leo Schofield gave uh, us in 1983. Um, filled that restaurant for six months. Mm. Um, a great review in any of the publications, whether it's traditional media now uh, or digital, um, might 
give you a bump in trade for two weeks. Yeah. I mean, that's how diluted food media is now. Yeah. And I think uh, I heard you on another um, interview and I like I, I sort of support this, um, but just haven't had the balls to do it really. But like you know, between it would be great, I reckon, if 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 us gourmet, like you know, the ones where like yeah. there's people still paying for their own meals and stuff, yeah. kind of agreed to amnesty and all agreed to go. Yeah, right, yeah. We're back to twelve weeks, and and, yeah. and let's yeah. hold it that. Yeah, it's just the economics of it as a publisher these days, because the models have become so digitally driven, traffic sort of yeah. result in um in these sort of missteps really like yeah, let's be honest yeah. that's what they are they're sort of well like I mean it's 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 like it's funny with a digital platform now where, where I mean I don't know why you'd even bother to buy the paper on Tuesday to read good food because digitally just about every article has, has been up on the on the on the website um, the same with gourmet the, all the mm. reviews are already on the on the website before you get the magazine to 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 read the review I mean it's just crazy yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's see what we can what we yeah, can do yeah, in, yeah. The, in the coming. I think things will revert because, uh, as what what I'd observe on this is that in the last sort of ten years, if you this is very publishing specific, so if you're not interested in publishing, switch off now. But like, yeah. it's been this triumph of um, distribution over content quality. That's sort of what the pressures yeah. have been, and yeah. and and um, and now as the market starts to re-rationalise, i.e., like people realise that. It's equals everyone can have the same level of distribution digitally. Yeah, like that's, we've established that. Content quality starts to become more of a thing, which means the weaker the quality content you have, eventually, like your yeah. audience trust disappears. But that's a bit of a future forward. Um, yeah, yeah, you don't want that to happen. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, look, it's interesting. I mean, you know, with everything that happens, um, you know, you, you sort of dilute the ability to get the message out so there's so many channels for food now right, yeah. of course once upon a time you could you could trust what leo schofield wrote because you know he was a very wealthy um ad guy um who probably on an expense accounts had eaten in some of the greatest restaurants in the world so it's all about benchmarking right yeah um, that's right and there's a lot of people who call themselves food reviewers now who would really have very limited knowledge of what really great food is um and and what great restaurants are and what benchmarks are around the world and and uh, the type of cuisine that's either been inspired by or, you know, a lot of people haven't even travelled and they're still writing about food. So so it's interesting. It's hard to know who to trust, basically, yeah. is what yeah. I'm saying, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and, uh, and um, yeah, like... Uh, I look forward to all the requests from my staff for international travel when I get back to the office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, um, you, you know, when you do masterclasses and do things with, with journalists and so forth that, and you kind of realise what people don't know. Yeah. Um, you take for granted that people know oh, a lot about pasta and then you talk to people about it and you go, mm, okay, maybe you didn't know as much mm. as what I thought. Um, so... And look, you know, reviewers have all got their tricks where they ring you up and they basically get you to describe what they ate and then and then they write, write it and then you read it like, wow, they really know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason they know what they're talking about is they just grilled the chef for everything that was, you know, yeah, they put yeah. in their mouth. Ego striking. Yeah, yeah. trick in the book. Yeah. So, um, Neil, the, 
the Order of Australia um, was obviously an, an amazing recognition yeah. for a lot of work that you've done, um, particularly in the charity space. You want to just share with us a bit about uh, why, how, and what you've, you've done there? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of uh, been a combination of my standing in the industry and the amount of people that I've trained in the industry and the amount of work that I've done, I suppose, waving the Australian flag here yeah. and overseas and, and very importantly, the amount of charity work that um, I've done and, and not just me but my entire team have been fantastic and um, it's, uh, it's you know, really through Starlight and Bestus and uh, Children's Hospital and, and, and Oz Harvest, my, kind of my major um, charities that I work very tightly with um, you know, it's a it's an incredible honour actually because you know when you're in the trenches cooking and and doing the sorts of things that you're doing, um, you never think that your country's going to actually recognise you and say, hey, um, you know, you've made an important contribution to Australia. Totally. Uh, because you're just down there cooking, right? Or you're down there, you know, running restaurants, and your major concern is, um, you know, keeping the doors open and keeping the staff motivated and and looking after your customers. So it's a really wonderful and unexpected, you know, byproduct, I guess, of being, you know, you would hope a decent human being and and um, and and making sure that, uh, again, um, everything that you're doing in life tries to echo um, some some form of you know higher uh, understanding of where you where, you know where you'd like people to go and follow you and yep. you know the, the way that you kind of I suppose think um, humanity's direction that should he- head in. I mean, one of the things that I've always been, and it's my dad uh, that really did it for me, I suppose, as well as produce, is, is just being very politically aware yeah. and being, you know, my first sort of vote was in the Whitlam government. So I, I've seen a lot of things happen in Australia and I've known a lot of politicians and it's actually crazy because you, you start out life, you know, as a cook um, and the next minute you're talking to prime ministers and foreign ministers and, and meeting people that you'd never dream you, you would ever have a, an opportunity to chat to and, and influence. But I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you get the country that you deserve because you really got to be as active as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, and whether that's, uh, you know, the, in the marriage equality debate or whether that's in um, Indigenous um, reconciliation or whether that's, uh, you know, talking about, um, you know, how, how we treat people and, and um, the refugee crisis or what, whatever it might be. Um, I hate you know, I, I hate living in Australia, and I hate living in a world where where um, m- you know minds narrow, and um, conservatism wins out over what really should be uh, a more humane approach to you know many things that we, we could be better at. Yeah. Well, do you remember what that first step was towards <clears throat> trying to do something for others, or, or to I guess change? You said. You know, potentially influence Australia, yeah, Australia yeah. influence politicians. Uh, look, a lot of people struggle with that first step. Yeah, no, I think more about the confidence that my parents gave me about yeah. um, where where I where I was and what I was doing, and I was all, always striving. Um, to be the best, like you know, to be the best I possibly could. So whether I was running the floor at sales or, you know, took the job at um, uh, at, at Baron Joey House or I was working at Stephanie's, you know, I, I was always trying um, to be the, the best I could be that day, and um, and and always trying to sort of look forward and 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 see how I could improve myself and how I could, um, you know, you know, go forward and be in a better place. And so, so I, I've always sort of tried to keep that philosophy really quarter everything that we do in the restaurants so you know fundamentally we we focus really strongly on why we do what we do which is to create great memories right um 
yeah, we're, we're in the restaurant business for sure, but the, the reality of what we're doing every day is, is creating a memory one way or the other for people, and it's that memory that drives them back, gets them to talk about us, uh, and, and gets them to, to convince other people to come and come and see us. So that's a big focus that we have, and we always do that through, um, you know, the care philosophy because the, yeah. the whole industry is hospitality, right, and if it's not delivered through generosity, um, it falls pretty pretty short so you know the care philosophy is about about you know caring about our producers and and suppliers that, that, that send us this amazing product because we would not be able to be who we are with, without it um, you know caring about the workplace so it's really you know looking after it every day and, yeah. and, and making sure that it's it's ready for to the customers to walk in and probably un- what underpins that is the you know care about each other and that's that whole there's no floor or or kitchen it's really we're working together for one thing and we need to support each other it's a it's a you know battlefield in there sometimes when the pressure's on and everyone's sat at once and all the orders are in so yeah. so you know if we're not helping each other it uh, can be a pretty grim place to be so that's super important to us and and um, you know the part of that whole care philosophy about caring about sustainability because um, yeah. we want to live a better future for for our kids and and for the younger kids who work in this in this industry and then caring about the community so we really push hard on that and it's great because everybody joins us you know all the kids volunteer to come and work with us and do events and do fundraisers or go and sort things for Oz Harvest or go and, and, and do some fundraising for them and um, and then you know sort of we talk about caring about the customer so that that's just one word but it kind of manifests itself in a lot of ways and yeah. people can really understand that uh, and often when I was sort of giving this chat in town halls when I first started at Qantas 22 years ago, I'd get, oh, you know, Neil, isn't the customer, you know, first? And I'd say, well, no, you know, this sounds strange, but not really, because yeah. it's exactly like you can't finish a dish without doing the mise en place, right? So if a customer walks in the door and we haven't focused on all the things that we need to be in to be a great team together and have these amazing suppliers, to have a fundamental sort of philosophy about sustainability and where we sit within this amazing community that looks after us then we really can't be in the right shape to look after the customer so um, by putting all that mise en place together you know we can create a great customer experience so um, that's what we do and and I talk to the guys about that sort of thing that's driven me my whole life which is you know trying your very best today and then tomorrow trying trying harder and so I, I see that in great food cultures around the world and so if you take Japanese cooking for instance where somebody can do um sushi uh, for, for 70 or 80 years of their life yeah. and they're doing it better at the end than at the beginning and that's that drive of okay I'm cutting a piece of fish but I'm not just cutting a piece of fish it's got to be the best fish that I've ever cut yeah. whether I'm you know 25 or whether I'm 50 and that <clears throat> that continual you know drive to improve and to understand that you can never rest on your laurels is really important to the growth of the restaurant and I think that's one of the things that we focus on really strongly and why you know Rockpool got to be almost 30 years old and Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne's 14 years old and this one's 10 is is that we don't um, ever get to the point where we're comfortable with what we're doing yeah um, like at the moment this restaurant is 10 years old the meat program has never been better than it is today and it's you know I, I can confidently say call out that it's the best steakhouse in the world because I know that no other place in the world is serving the beef that we are, the type of beef, the range of beef, 
um, through David Blackmore. Um, you know, we've got three bodies of these incredible roan grass fed, which is a composite breed that he's created that he thinks is going to end up being better than Black Angus as a, as a grass fed yeah, right. animal. Mishima, which is the original um, the founding member of the of creating Wagyu, the original Japanese cow. Um, his amazing Wagyu, 36-month uh, grass-fed out of Tasmania, 60-month grass-fed out of Tasmania, which is kind of the sustainable mothers of Cape Grim, if you like. Yeah. <coughs> Although they wouldn't let me call that on the menu um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, I know Mishima and Rona serve nowhere else in the world um, right. because they're exclusive to us currently. Uh, we're, we're just working at the moment with a with a, a dairy uh, guy out of Cowra who's uh, at the end of the dairy cow's life, you know, time, time between five and seven years in Australia. Uh, they've all you know, gone off and become mincemeat, um, and we've convinced them to, to sort of take the, the short loins and the and the saddles out and the rumps, and they're they're finishing them for the last sixty days and grass and a bit of grain just to to fatten them up a little bit and. Um, it's just extraordinary. So we're serving this, you know, six-year-old dairy cow at the moment, and it's it's phenomenal. Um, each of the of the particular breeds and each of the particular animals have a, you know, a different flavour. And the dairy cows come in, and it's quite different to, say, the Rangers Valley grain fed at 600 days, which is full on creamy, um, and the dairy cow, which is strange to say this, but but has this wonderful acidity and this incredible butteriness mm. um, to it. Uh, and of course, the Cape Grim, which has this incredible long length of beef flavour and purity. Um, the Wagyu, which is caramel popcorn. Um, the Mishima, which has this amazing texture of Wagyu, but again, the long, uh, beautiful flavour of grass-fed animal because it, it's grass-fed its whole life. And the Roan, which is this incredible beefy, um, unique flavour. Again, almost the acidity of the of the dairy cow, but this uh, just absolute pronounced um, flavour of purity of beef that it, that, mm. that it has and the, and the texture is um, phenomenal. So, I mean, I can just sort of, and, and all of those animals dried, aged on the premises and cut by our butcher. Um, so I just know no one's doing that. Um, yeah. So... Um, just taking the time, which probably it's probably a bit for lunches. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, a, it's amazing at the moment. The it's program. interesting sort of listening. <clears throat> we um, interviewed Josh Nyland on the podcast yeah. uh, some time back. And, um, no, I love Josh. Yeah, and there's a sort of a rhythm to both Josh's speech and Neil's speech yeah. around you know that and uh, his his obsession uh, oh well, I love him but you know I, I kind of say to him I mean I completely understand and, and, and agree with um, ageing oily fish like sorties and and, <laughs> and um, uh, tuna mackerel um but I just keep, I tease him. I just say, dude, it's just, it's not dry age, it's old fish. <laughs> <laughs> My fishermen agree. Yeah. Um, so things like coral trout and um, whiting and, you know, all of the smaller white flesh fish, you know, spanking fresh is the best. The juiciness, the sweetness, um, yeah, right, which yeah. disappears when you, when you, you know, dehydrate it. Which yeah. Is interesting. Yeah. But I, I love Josh and he's really driven and, and, um, He's very focused on on you know his stick, which is which is exactly that, um, yeah. and uh, he's doing a great job of it. Yeah, and his uh, his um, sort of patter is very much about like moving things, and and he's got this obsession about sort of the modern institution, which um, yeah, I think we can thank you for sort of creating that pathway at least yeah. uh, because it's a, that sort of continual improvement process that I think yeah. probably has you know seen you achieve where you've you've landed yeah absolutely you know, and, and look he's a wonderful young kid and he's and he's um his wife julie worked for me for a long time at Rockpool, and um and she's a terrific girl as well you know we've got the the three kids now which are a handful i'm sure <laughs> yeah. but uh but yeah he's an awesome guy I'm, 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 this is purely a personal question but 
out of your stable, your personal stable of restaurants, which yes. one is the the golden child, the number one that you would uh, sit down at over the others? Well, I eat at all my restaurants, so um, in including Burger Project, because I think it's the best burger in the world. <laughs> um, again, because you know, if you take Cape Grim beef and you've got brisket and chuck, and you mince them on the premises and hand form them into a patty, like no one's getting even near that, right? Mm. Um, so. It's kind of like I've got three daughters yeah. asking no, which is your favourite. There's, there's always a favourite. Because, I, you, know, I, I, you know, if I want to eat meat or seafood, I oh, you know, I eat seafood, I come to all the restaurants because we have the same seafood as well. But, um, you know, if I want to eat it in its purity, I, I, I come here um, and I love eating in this restaurant. It's yeah, it's one of the most awesome restaurants in the world. I mean, that, that uh, Art Deco chamber is just extraordinary and, yeah. and I love drinking great wine here. Um, I love Spice Temple. My Sam, my wife and I would just... Well, take a corner in the bar quite often and no one cooks ginger shallot mud crab like Andy Evans I mean he's the most extraordinary Asian cook um, mm. Andy started with me when he was 17 he's been with me for went away for a little while went travelling got married had some kids but he's been with me for over you know 10 or 20 years now wow. <clears throat> um, Rich who cooks um, at Rosetta and I love that place I mean those pizzas they're doing at the moment with that four day ferment it's just absolutely cracking um, and they make the best pasta um, it's just awesome all the extrusion and laminated and uh, Joyce is uh, doing doing most of it and she's just doing such a great job and yep. Rich is amazing um, he worked for me in the 90s for about seven years and met his wife there and she works here Minna on the floor she's awesome they've got two kids and then he went away and did a lot of catering um, and uh, he's come back and uh, I don't know what it is about him, but I just don't know how some middle-aged Jewish Australian boy mm. cooks like a nonna. <laughs> uh, he cooks real Italian food. Yeah, right. Um, in an environment where everyone's cooking Italian food around the country that's maybe driven by um, a desire to take it to a fine dining experience. Yeah. But I generally avoid places like that, not in Australia, but but when I'm in Italy, yeah. because I love the authenticity of real cooking for the moment and the seasonality of Italian food. Mm. Uh, and Rich cooks like that. So, yeah, the artichoke caponata that is on at the moment is worth crawling over broken glass to get yeah, to. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So I think the answer to that You're dodging was, the question as well. well yeah, <laughs> no. Neil loves all these orders equally, I think, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, because I wouldn't open a restaurant. It's like people say to me, I mean, there's 70 things on the me menu here. People say, oh, what's your favourite dish? It's like, well... I wouldn't wouldn't be on the menu if they weren't on my favourites. I mean, yeah. you know, to get on a menu at, at one of my restaurants, I have to really love eating that dish. <laughs> so, so um, you know, it's it's I, I don't I don't believe in signatures or favourites. I just believe in you know, and and whenever we have people call, call out things and go like, oh, you know, these are specials. Well, like everything's special on the menu. So we don't. In, I have a philosophy where I don't call things specials. I call them additions. So if we're going to verbal something, we have an addition to the menu. You know. Every single thing on that menu is special. So, you know, that's our, our philosophy. The, um, we won't dive too deep into it, but I just think it's, it's good to note, I mean, the sustainability of people in your organisation. I know we've touched on it a couple of times. Yeah, but hearing yeah. people that have been here for 20 years or that leave and come back, I yeah, think yeah. It's, it's so uncommon. Um, 
especially at the premium end of the restaurant market. I, I, I think, a, yeah, well, I think one of the really nice things is that a lot of people leave because they always think the grass is green on the other side. Yeah. And then they go, oh, chef, those guys talk about using great produce, but you know what? They really don't. Mm. And, um, and, and people get to handle things in this restaurant that they just, you know, unless you're working at the very, very top end, you would never get to see. Yeah. And then often, particularly at a place like Bar and Grill, which is big and robust and busy, I mean, we get to buy things that people don't get to do. You know, we have our own charcuterie program. We make our own cheese. We make all our own pasta. We cut all our own beef. We break Wagyu bodies. We buy whole lambs. We buy whole pigs. Um, you know, th- these are sort of things that, that apprentices would, even in great restaurants, yeah. because they're smaller and it's hard to be exposed to that sort of thing. Yeah. So everyone learns how to fillet fish. Everyone learns how to break ribs. Everybody learns uh, how to make pasta. Everybody learns the charcuterie program. Everybody knows learns the fermenting that we do with the sauerkraut and the and the jalapeno sauce and the various things that we do. Everyone learn, knows learns how to make the goat's curd and so so you know there there are there are crafts in this restaurant, although the food is um, breathtakingly simple, that um, you learn that you know to stay with you you know for the rest of your life. Yeah, I yeah. There's all of that, <laughs> but there's also the ideology that welcomes people back. Yeah. I think that's there's humility around that, which I think is, is should be respected. Yeah, well, I mean, you invest a lot of time in people, so it's yeah. wonderful when they come back. And generally speaking, um, um, not always, but but you know, the vast majority of people who come back, they come back for a very long time because they always come back for all the right reasons, right? Yeah. Um, and I always really try to make sure that every single person you know, that possibly can leaves on um, the right terms. And that's not always possible, but but generally speaking, um, you know, if people have been with us for a long time, we kind of encourage them to spread their wings and, and go and learn and travel. And yeah. and then, you know, quite, quite a large percentage of the time, you then get those people back with a whole lot of new ideas. So... So um, it's it helps it helps to grow the entire organisation and having a you know, great mentoring program and structure within the business where people are really trying to look after each other and make sure that that um, we see if people are having issues or struggling or you know and whether that's um, in a day to day the work that they're doing or struggling emotionally uh, or struggling to fit in we really try and make sure that we can can call out that that and and try to uh, you know really help support people to catch up and um, and hopefully um, help them to get into a better place in their life. So, so that's one of the things that the kids work on really strongly here. So, Neil, we've got a few questions we'd just like to throw at you to wrap us all up here. Um, favourite book or podcast that you've listened to recently? Well, my favourite book at the moment would most likely be Echabari, who um, who is uh, the most amazing um, chef, uh, uh, Bita is his name, out of the Basque country. Yeah. And uh, he cooks everything over charcoal. Um, Lennox, actually, yeah, yeah, <coughs> from yeah. Fyodor. 
is um is a great is a great uh, student of his. So um, I've eaten the restaurant about five times. I think it's famous in Australia because I just told every single food writer <laughs> when I first went there. And it was a much simpler restaurant in two thousand and four. Um, 2005 maybe or maybe 2003 when I first went there but I've been there about five times uh, and I absolutely love it and the book, the book came out um, last year and I got hold of it and it's um, there's not much about cooking but there's a, a wonderful about, I guess about page 250 before there's even a recipe um, <laughs> but, a, but a wonderful read about an incredible man who um, yeah takes cooking with fire to, to a level that's unseen right. yeah well uh, Lennox is I'm still waiting on my Tupperware mate so uh, whenever you're ready please return it um, okay <laughs> um, and uh, favourite album or artist that you want music artist you want listening to uh, favourite well you know at the moment I'm sort of completely immersed in um, Billie Eilish <laughs> because my daughters have got me um, heavily involved um, in it and I really do enjoy the music but I mean I've got a fairly eclectic music uh, taste so um, everything from getting up on Sunday morning and listening to some opera or uh, right through to um, right right through to uh, you know 70s and 80s and um, you know through to yeah Billie Eilish and Khaled, Khaled just got me into that as well so you know yeah it is a good thing it's good it's good having 15 year olds that's right and then last night they were all dancing while listening to um, Super Tramp and uh, you know all these various things that yeah, I've introduced right. them to so it was, it was great I, I yearn for the day where we did Frozen in our household but uh, yeah, yeah. let it go let it go yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we haven't talked too much about beverages which is a popular topic on this um, podcast but uh, what's sort of exciting you in the, in the beverage scene at the moment well, man, I love the cocktail programs that are around now. So, I mean, I don't drink a lot of cocktails because I love wine um, because if I drink too many cocktails, I go sideways. But, but um, you know, I just had Dante, a great friend of mine, Lyndon Pride, who worked for me for many years and started the, the mm. program here over doing a little tour with us. And, uh, you know, Chocolate Negroni was unreal and um, the Upside Down Gibson, you know, awesome, awesome martini style um, drink. So I love those. But, look, you know, wine excites me. I've, you know, got about... Two and a half, three thousand bottles at home in the cellar, yeah. um, of which I knocked off an amazing Chambertin last night, um, ninety-five, which was uh, extraordinary. Uh, right next to an eighty-six Grange, which was I don't really like Grange that much, but I, but I decided to pull out an older one that I they had lurking around. And it was bloody delicious, actually. Reminds me that the old ones are good when they've got about thirty years on them. So, um, <clears throat> I yeah, I love drinking great wine and Coastery Nassau, um, which was. We drank last night, so it was superb. It was so, a great night. So Thursday nights, uh, it's Billy Eilish and Grange night. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said there were, there were four fifteen-year-olds and a couple of twelve-year-olds, but there were a few a few grown-ups dancing to, uh, <laughs> to to various things last night. I'm not, I'm not sure I remember all of it, but it was a great night. Um, we are definitely not going to um, ask you to choose between your three children again. But no. in terms of um, favourite venues outside of your own. Um, yeah, ones that you're involved with. Um, yeah, yeah, I like a lot of all time or, or now. Yeah, like favourite venue in Sydney. Um, that's hard. I mean, I like I like eating around and supporting a lot of the young kids. So going to Lankin Filling Station. Um, mm. Tama is great girl. Maddie used, used to work for me. So Esther. Yeah. Um, I really like what da- uh, Danielle's doing up at um, up at uh, Fred's. Um, you know, dropping in, seeing Hongi for some dumplings and a bit of bit of duck or, or um, you know, we went up to 10 William the other day and, and um, Trish doing a really fantastic um, job of picking up the reins there and doing some nice 
nice stuff. And then I eat a lot in Chinatown. Um, and, you know, favourite Australian restaurant of all time would be Flower Drum. Um, right. You know, just yeah. such a level. It would be a, a three Michelin star restaurant in, in Hong Kong in a heartbeat. Um, I love a couple of the three stars up there, but... Um, as far as the quality of the ingredient, the craft of the cooking, um, the level of service that, that Jason gives on the floor with his team, um, extraordinary. I've been going there 35 years and, uh, you know, I, I, I know half a dozen of the waiters that were young mm. men when I was going there, but, <laughs> but I feel like I'm walking in, in you know, to, to, to home when I, when I arrive. Yeah, strong answers. And I think I've now learned where uh, most of the nominations for the Food Awards across the city come from, but um, look forward to that season fast on approach. Um, and lastly, um, who in the industry, I mean, you've, you know, we talk about this, you, you, you have definitely inspired so many of, uh, of, of, of Australia's hospitality, but when it comes to yourself, who in particular yeah. may have inspired you? Man, I think in Australia, you know, my kind of mentors in the, in '82, um, you know, Stephanie Alexander and and uh, and Damien Pignolet, most definitely. Um, you know, my contemporaries that I've loved working with, like uh, you know, David Thompson, um, Steve Manfredi, uh, guys like um, uh, just right on the tip of my tongue, just went out the the, the door. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Chrissy Manfield, um, the, all the people that I was working with in the in the late '80s and and um, early early '90s, I've a great deal of respect for. And then internationally, uh, you know, I've had the great pleasure of being a really close friend of, of Thomas Keller's from the French Laundry. I find to be um, you know a really awesome human being, um, fantastic chef, great leader. Uh, and uh, you know, amazing humanitarian. So, they, they, you know, that's the sort of people that have really inspired me. You know, Alice Waters, of course, with her incredible philosophy uh, with Chez Panisse in the States, and she was talking about farm to table and and um, sustainability. You know, over forty years ago. So, you know, they're the sort of people who um, I've really uh, admired and um, you know, and, and really kind of uh, inspired me. That's a pretty good list for anyone that's looking for sort of inspiration beyond yourself in this yeah, market. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, all, all's left to do for us, but uh, thank you for joining us on the Back of House podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for all the wonderful meals that we've enjoyed in fine <laughs> institutions. We'll keep uh, it up. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and hopefully we can stick around for some lunch a bit later. Hey, brilliant. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Neil. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks a lot. It is only 11 in the morning. We've just finished that recording with Neil Perry. I'm getting a little bit hungry. Yes. This, is our, this may be our first podcast without any alcohol. I know. Well, we didn't even have coffee. Um, so, jeez, we'll have to have steak and a bottle of wine. Um, so, look, I guess the thing that really stood out for me, and we, I, we didn't really go into it too much, but um, his upbringing in terms of, I think, the way that his father has obviously had a huge effect on him. Like, he mentioned him several times. Um, it's pretty amazing to think, you know, in a generation, you know, one, one removed from us, I guess, um, 
having a role model like that who was so ready to integrate with people from other cultures, whether it be through work or through um, other facets of his life, and seeing the result that that's had on someone like Neil, who um, has a very you know broad view of society and obviously has opened restaurants that feature cuisines from different parts of the world. Obviously, so commercially it's had an impact on him. But I just think it's interesting to look at the um, authenticity, and we talk about that a lot, but of his approach and how it inter- interacts with his business on a daily basis. Yeah, uh, I can't, that was probably the key takeaway from me was the how how much of a a role his upbringing played in his business obviously in him as an individual that's most could be said for most people but um i just i found that quite uh, quite interesting yeah and for me as well someone's been around for like 13 years never really sat down with him it it was so nice and rewarding to see that the reputation is well deserved and mm. there were so many instances during that where he was just even, I don't know how many restaurants the groups are, it's huge. He just knows people like, you know, he can cite the familiar at this restaurant, the people he've worked in other restaurants, who's on the past. It's yeah. just, there's no sort of faking that, I think. It's not like he studied an org chart before he got on the podcast and thought, oh, yeah, better record this, they may ask. No. It's just so uh, inherent in his, in clearly what's sort of got him to where he is, is that um, adherence to improvement, continual improvement um, yeah. in, in the widest possible sense. I found that really inspiring. Yeah, the humility there, um, the approach to sustainability, obviously a great theme that I think a lot of um, business operators, you know, like a lot of humans could probably take a lot away from yeah. in this current uh, you know, global climate or changing climate. Yeah, um, yeah for just a, a really impressive guy, a lovely guy. Yeah, well, I hope uh, our listeners enjoy that one just as much as we did.